the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, prognostications of brooms, portents of good housekeeping, time-warping Appalachian ditties, plus we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Alliance of Equals by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. We talk with D.J. Butler this time about his book, Witchy Eye, and especially about the new CD of music he's put out that contains songs and ballads from the book. We play a few cuts from the CD as Dave Butler discusses how he worked them into the book and how the book kind of demanded that they exist, and and he had to write them. So Dave Butler is fascinating, down-home and erudite, and it's a lot of fun to talk with him about his great vision of an alternate magic-bound American past. And we also continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Leiden Universe novel Alliance of Equals by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. Now here's the news. Your honors, I contest. Well, not me, because I'm disqualified on the count of I already have one. But this month's contest is for a copy of the great new anthology, The Monster Hunter Files, signed by editors Larry Correa and Brian Thomas Schmidt. The Monster Hunter Files explores the world of Larry Correa's Monster Hunter universe like never before, highlighting little-known aspects of the series. Which got us wondering, who is your favorite supporting character in the Monster Hunter series? Which monster hunter or monster in the background caught your attention? Let us know to be entered in this month's drawing. Okay, yes, it's a random drawing, but we will be compiling the answers and we'll announce that when we give away the prize. So send them in and be counted and get a chance to win the very cool hardcover with Larry's famous devil smiley face signature, which is very cool to have. Details are at the Bain.com front page right there on the sinister side of your screen. Wahahaha. Wanna welcome DJ Butler to the podcast. Hey Dave. Hey, good to see you, Tony. Um, DJ Butler grew up in swamps, deserts, and mountains. After messing around for years with the practice of the law, he finally got serious and turned to his lifelong passion of storytelling. He now writes adventure stories for readers of all ages, plays guitar, which we'll talk about, and spends as much time as he can with his family. Witchy Eye is his first novel from Bain, although he's written a bunch of other stuff, I believe. So uh, Witchy Eye came out last uh, March, last March, and now we've got a sequel coming out, which is called Witchy Winter. Right? Coming out in April. Very excited about that. Yeah. So, um, well, let's talk about... Uh, let's talk about your origin story to begin with a little bit. Um, Witchy Eye is basically a, uh, it's a fantasy story that's set in America, in, in the North American continent, with um, where magic works, and things have turned out a bit differently. Um, what led you from being a, a corporate lawyer to writing, uh, writing that sort of historical magical tale? Huh. What path uh, was that? There, there's that's a that's a big question. There's a lot of questions there. Um, you know, really, uh, and this is probably a pretty common story. I wanted to be a writer from the age of about eight. My dad was a, a college professor, and when he came back from conferences, he would bring presents and specifically books. And so, when I was eight, I got a copy of the Silver Jubilee 25th Anniversary Edition uh, Lord of the Rings paperback box set with Daryl K. Sweet's covers. And I didn't leave bed for about a week while I read them. Yeah. Did it have the big fold-out map? And- uh, it, uh, no, that one didn't. It, had, it just mapped a little tiny, very hard-to-read, kind of bleeding ink. Oh. Yeah, the fold-out maps are gorgeous. Uh, with, like, two, you know, with red ink on, uh, yeah. I got that in later editions. Um, so I thought, uh, all, all growing up, I thought I'd be a writer. And I wrote short stories, and I wrote a... a Mercifully, I think all even electronic copies do not exist. But I wrote an, the obligatory novel in high school, uh, and uh, and and really the the detour, the, the oddity here is is the 13 years I spent practicing law, 
which to sum it up in you know three words, I chickened out. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you were you were actually a clandestine rider. That's the right. Entire time. That's right. And so while I was practicing law, um, I read. I love history and language. I think that probably comes through in the book. Um, and I uh, played music, and and, and I wrote. Uh, uh, no novels, but uh, I wrote screenplays, uh, spec screenplays that again went nowhere, and I wrote an awful lot of songs. Uh, which uh, did you? Uh, are you a musician from from childhood, or was that no? When well, you take up your your musical craft, you play the guitar. I play the guitar. I play the guitar uh, reasonably well. Um, you know, for a, for a, for a non musician kind of guy. Uh, I started learning as an adult. Uh, I was 20. One of my regrets uh, is that I, uh, my parents uh, did not win the battle of wills with me when I was a child and forced me to take an instrument. Uh, so we have, we're making our kids do that because uh, I, cause I uh, picked it up as a grown-up. And um, uh, I play uh, guitar okay, and then I have, uh, you know, from playing guitar, it's a small step to playing mandolin or bass or picking on a banjo. So I've got all of those. Uh, and uh, and use them in my recording. So music has become a big deal to you, and it's affected your thinking in a way of. Uh... Now you, there are ballads that you've written uh, that are in witchy eye. Yeah, and those um, those actually have music to them. Then. Yeah. So your opening question was such a great one. Um, well, c- continue. So continue well, well, no, but it, but if it, it ties in. It ties into this one. Right. So the the answers all circle the same space. So you know, Tolkien uh, is is uh, in writing the Lord of the Rings is writing a very English book, and it's not just any England; it's his England, right? It it is a it is an England whose uh, or it is it is a mythological ancient England whose Germanic roots are strong, which has a lot of Catholicism uh, sort of showing in its in its seams. Uh, and and so that's sort of uh, Tolkien's spiritual exploration uh, of 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 England, and uh, and which yeah, in a lot of ways is uh, my uh, personal spiritual explanation exploration of America. And and you were exactly right when you said that it happens in North American continent, which is to say, it doesn't happen in America per se because that word never actually appears uh, in uh, in the books. But but uh, but look, one of the ways that I experience America and think about Americanness is uh, music, and uh, and uh, one of my favorite books about musical criticism is uh, the Old Weird America, which I think is Grail Marcus's book about Bob Dylan, his early career and the Basement Tapes recordings with the band, and sort of shows Bob as a uh, in the in the old troubadour tradition. Reusing tropes and even lines from tr- a traditional yeah, sure. body yeah. uh, to to tell stories. Um, that that's 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 uh, that's how I experience America in a lot of ways, right? Harry Smith's uh, what are they called? The three volumes of the collection of American records, Folklore. something records, like that. Yeah, those yeah. are great. They're um, great. I mean, it's basically the original uh, bootleg. This is this is a, a sort of uh, Scotch Irish uh, English heritage as well that's uh, yeah that that has brought the folk, folklore as well over as well as the music right that's the uh, that's right which is extremely important in witchy eye that's right so so in in a way in the same way that america has sort of sung uh, to me witchy eye in some ways is me singing back to america so so from when i first conceived of it it was in part musical so it has uh, several complete songs um, uh, actually, that's, let me backtrack on that. It has several songs with multiple verses in the book, uh, some fragments of songs. It has uh, some music built into its political structure. Uh, it has a couple of traditional real-world songs, or not traditional, but old real-world songs whose lyrics came into the book. Um, and from the beginning, I always intended to make a recording, and, uh, and I have done so. So... Um... What do you think our first cut should be? That we're going to play a little bit of, of this music that you've created that's uh, inspired the book. Uh, so maybe we could play the two. Uh, one of the two that I have uh, sung to audiences at bookstores. So uh, I've traveled to uh, 
bookstores in uh, all over the country, actually, at this point, uh, with my guitar. And I, there are a couple of these songs that I sing uh, before doing a reading and signing. So one of those is track two on the album, which is Old King Andy Jackson. So let's play it. Let's listen to that. Here it is, boys. Go easy. Jackson, he was the best of men. He visited New Orleans in 1810. The Frenchies drove old Jackson out. He marched back in again. Doff your hat to old King Andy Jackson. Doff your hat now. Jackson was thirsty for a drink. The Mississippi water's wet, but it's got a mighty stink. Jean met him on the Pontchartrain, and there he let him sink. Raise your glass to old King Andy Jackson. Old King Andy Jackson, come a-marching up our trail. We rounded up our pirates, we emptied out our jails. We lined up every rifle behind stacked cotton bales. Take your shot at old King Andy Jackson. It's too old Andy Jackson as a hell of a fighting man. That don't mean I want him for my king. Jackson's a fella no one grieves. Some nameless soldier shot him with stripes upon his sleeves. They hung him in that iron cage between two DG thieves. So bow the knees to old King Andy Jackson. Raise your hat to old King Andy Jackson. Say a prayer for old King Andy Jackson. Come on and sing this song for old King Andy Jackson. So you mentioned that you've been traveling around in the ancient troubadour tradition. That's um, right. Tell us a little bit about the book, the book signing and book tour that you've been doing. I mean, you had a really exciting time in Texas recently. Yeah, three dates with Larry in uh, Korea, Korea, in San Antonio, uh, um, Dallas, and uh, Houston, um, f- where people came out to see us, and I would sing and. Uh, uh, kind of explain the book a little bit and, and then read from it. Uh, and then uh, Larry would, uh, would spend some time talking with folks. That was great. I also uh, went up the West Coast, uh, hit bookstores in, uh, actually had car failure, which stopped us from hitting the California stores we planned on, but Oregon, Washington, Idaho, uh, Utah, Massachusetts. Uh, and in fact, as, as we're recording this, I'm actually doing the same thing in uh, Charlotte, North Carolina tonight. Very cool. Very cool. So, I mean, do you feel uh, a connection to uh, to this music that's inspired you? I mean, you must to, to, to be carrying around a bard's harp. <laughs> yeah, I singing songs of, that are that are ballads, right? They're stories. That's right. Some of these are actually straight up ballads in the technical, literal sense. Uh, uh, s- narrative stories that are structured in a series of identical verses with no chorus or refrain or bridge. Uh, yeah, I feel a lot of a connection to that, in to the songs I've written and to the art form. Uh, I, I, I think a lot in terms of uh, song lyrics and music. Well, let's listen to another one that is, um, and can you, before we listen to it, can you kind of place it within the book where, where it happens and, and what's going on? Yeah, let me comment briefly on Old King Andy Jackson there for just a moment. Yeah, sure. So, um, Witchy Eye is set in an an alternate 1815 North America. Um, It's not alternate history in the way, uh, for example, Harry Turtledove is famous for writing alternate history, where a single event 
happens differently from the way it happens in our world, and therefore you get a different set of outcomes, and we explore, well, what's the importance of that one message that got through or the battle that was lost or whatever. Sure. Well, and our, our big guy doing that sort of thing was Robert Conroy. Robert Conroy, yeah. So, anyway... Uh, yeah, so uh, Witchy Eye is, is more like I took um, a lot of the pieces uh, that make up America, uh, in, including things like uh, uh, the uh, different native peoples, uh, uh, different immigrant groups uh, with their different cultures, uh, the, the biblical epic, uh, and, uh, and broke it all apart and then built a fantasy setting out of the pieces. So uh, that means some real-world people um, occur in the witchy eye setting. Uh, they're there, uh, and they bear some resemblance to their real-world counterparts. So Benjamin Franklin's an example. Benjamin Franklin in the witchy eye setting is the author uh, under the auspices of the pen landholder John Penn of the 1784 Philadelphia Compact, which is the the constitutive document of the empire it determines who is allowed to vote for the empire who the electors are um as well as setting out their powers and the limits on the empire uh, emperor's power uh ben franklin was also the 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 lightning bishop so he's a he's sort of an experimenter wizard uh and uh and cleric uh andy jackson uh is also part of the backstory uh in the real world of course jackson is most famous for well, he was president, but the, the, the career-making event was the Battle of New Orleans and the War of 1812, uh, where uh, Jackson, along with the uh, pirates Pierre and Jean Lafitte, uh, defend New Orleans against British invasion. Uh, he's a national war hero, and then he later becomes president uh, on, on the back of this. So um, in, in the Witchy setting, Jackson's most famous for his uh, 1810 attempt to conquer uh, the city of New Orleans, uh, apparently to make himself king of the Mississippi, whatever that means. Uh, he, uh, and he fails and dies in the attempt. When our, our heroine first sees him, she is, uh, and I like to share this because it's sort of an example of the way I like to play with history. So she sees him entering New Orleans for the first time, and she's crossing to the New Orleans, uh, to the, the St. Louis Cathedral, and there's a big parade ground called the Place d'Armes in front of the cathedral, and there's Jackson. Jackson and his two chief lieutenants are all dead. They've been moldering in iron cages hanging above the Place d'Armes for, for, uh, for five years since the event, uh, which is a historical pun because the, the Place d'Armes was the prior name of what is now called Jackson Square, right, named after Andrew Jackson. Yeah. Uh, uh, so... So that's uh, Old King Andy Jackson, uh, which is a song uh, uh, about the attempted taking of New Orleans, or at least as it is popularly seen in the setting. Uh, so uh, maybe for a second track, we could listen to uh, The Lion of Missouri. Is that a good one? Sure, let's do that. So let me say a, a bit about that. Um, this is about a, a character who does not exist in the real world. There are, um, so in the same way that the, the word America does not appear, the word human also does not appear, at least not in the sense of human being. Uh, no one is a human or a non-human. But there are, um, to use out-of-book terminology, there are two races of humans, uh, or maybe humans and elves. And, and elves is a word that does appear in the book, uh, along with fairies and firstborn and serpentborn and other stuff. And the the way the... People in the setting think and talk about this distinction is as a um, as descendants of different wives of Adam. The fairies, the elves, the Ophidians are, are are believed to be the daughter of Adam and a serpent. Adam and his first wife, uh, whoever that was, whatever that was. The Lilith myth, yeah. Yeah, that's that's yes, that's that's one that's one version of it. So this, the line of Missouri, is a. Uh, tale about a, uh, one of the firstborn kings. So the firstborn uh, live all over the continent, but especially in the Ohio River Valley, uh, where they have seven kingdoms, uh, the greatest of which, the most famous of which is Cahokia. 
which is to say basically St. Louis. Yeah. And and this is the Lion of Missouri is a is a nickname and kind of a title of actually the father of the of the the protagonist, the father of, of uh, Sarah Calhoun. She doesn't know this as the story starts, but you figure it out by about chapter three. So I don't feel like I'm giving any large spoilers here. So and he she is, is adopted. She's adopted. She's to keep her safe, basically. Yeah, so. Exactly. Raises a foster child. Yeah. A lot of the backstory, a lot of what drives the action in Witchy Eye is the, is the career of, uh, of the Lion of Missouri. There was a king named uh, Curius Eleutharius. As a young man, he was not expected to succeed to the throne. Uh, he became a military hero fighting uh, the Spanish War. Uh, and, uh, and, and eventually rose to the heights of marrying, in fact, the Penn landholder at the time, Hannah Penn, who was, uh, who was the empress, the elected empress, uh, and then died mysteriously while policing the western borders uh, of his kingdom. Uh, and his, his death and disappearance and his career are uh, part of the uh, driver, some of the drivers for the action in the books. So this is a song about... Uh, Curious Eleutharius, the hero, our heroine's father, the Lion of Missouri. No wild beast of the great green wood, the bison, the sloth, and the wolf, learn to hear his footstep and light out in a hurry. His blade was sharp, his arm was strong, his shot was long, the lion of misery. St. John's knights and the viceroy's men, the Hessian, the Greek, and the Turk, felt the white-hot fire of the young Cahokian's fury. His word, his heart, and his aim were true. And his soldiers to the lion of misery. Against highwaymen, sorcerers. Lawyers, land agents, and banks. He rode as hangman, circuit judge, and jury. His horse was fear, his cloak was awe, his look was death, and his word was law. The lion. The lion rode into the great green wood, and the green wood now he lies. And from the rocks, his enemies all scurry. He left poor mad Hannah all alone, an unmarked grave and an empty throne for the lion. What um, what about the uh, the upcoming uh, Witchy Winter? Do you continue in this uh, in this vein? Um, are there any cuts on this that that um, are that appear in that book, or are you going to have another uh, sequel album? Perhaps? There there will be a sequel album. Yeah, there absolutely yeah. will. Now I haven't yet got notes back from uh, Jim, so I don't know what he's going to tell me to cut. Uh, but unless he tells me to cut all the music, <laughs> probably won't. Probably not. I don't know. 
It, it didn't do well when I think some editor suggested to Tolkien. Yeah, that's right. Get this thing out of here. It should be, there should be a, a similar um, a record. So uh, what I've got here on this album is, is uh, three um, Elector songs. Tell us a little bit about how the magic system works and who the, who the bad guys are as well in this. Um, yeah. There's some, uh, I love that Sir Isaac Newton and is, is, a, is a necromancer of some sort, right? In the... Yeah, he's part, he's part of the backstory. The, the direct, uh, well, so, so the magic system. There are uh, so Sarah is the is the magic using character through whose eyes we see most of the action, and so she uh, graduates quickly from using sort of the learned uh, simple hexes and charms to uh, practicing magic on a more theoretical level, which which really is to say like an anthropologist, uh, because Sarah as she's doing magic. Uh, is using uh, James George Fraser's concepts of of laws of uh, of similarity and contagion, sympathetic magic. Uh, so magic is constructed by uh, willing energy along a, a bridge, if you will, constructed of things that are either connected in space and time because of their prior connection, or connected in space and time because of their similarity. And that's now that in the book is magic at its highest, most theoretical level and and that and Sarah's ability to do that makes her powerful uh, we hear references to other kinds of magical traditions and in book two we start to see some of them uh, and what I've tried to do is actually reasonably faithfully interpret in a heroic fantasy setting some actual uh, North American magical traditions so uh, for example uh, Pennsylvania German Braukerei there's a character in book two who is a kind of magical thief, which is to say he tries to get initiated into magical traditions to learn magic he can from any source because he is, in fact, not confident in his own talent, because he, in fact, doesn't have the ability to practice magic like Sarah. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so Braukerai is part of, the, part of the, the skill set, part of his background training. Well, this, is, this, is a, this is a fascinating tradition. Is it? I mean, isn't that usually healing magic? It or? usually is. In fact, I think, that a, uh, I think that a Brauker might tell you it's not magic at all, uh, which is to say that these are, these are certain kinds of prayers you say, and it's a knowledge of certain kinds of herbs. And, and that's true, although when you have a rote prayer and it requires ritual gestures and you move your hand a certain way over someone, part of someone's body, it's, it's pretty hard to tell the difference between that and a magic spell, right? Uh, now, now uh, uh, and, and Braukers have an interesting set of conditions under Braukerai, right? A, a Brauker is not supposed to be able to make money, uh, nor can he practice magic or Braukerai on his own behalf. Uh, or on the behalf of his own family, it's supposed to be something you do as a, a service, uh, as a as a as a kind of act of worship, right? Uh, an act of Christian service. So this is this is an explicit, uh, explicitly Christian, real world uh, American magical tradition, and it's an example of one of the ones I try to uh, present. Again, you know, as well as I can as an outsider, but also in an epic fantasy kind of setting uh, in Witchy Winter. Yeah, there's uh well let's listen to um to another cut. Um how about something that's uh, you have something that's uh, evocative, less of a story, um more of a, a evocation uh, that you might want to listen to. Yeah, well let me let me let's listen to a really short one here. So, uh there are three elector songs on this and there'll be uh, elector songs on the second uh second CD because they're in the second book. So, let me say a little word about what these are. We can listen to one. They're super short, like 20 seconds. So, um, again, in the witchy eye setting in 1784, the empire is formed, uh, and uh, in order to teach people the Constitution, John Penn's minstrel, Walter Fitzroy, pens a series of, writes a series of short songs that are designed to teach civic lessons embodied in little bits of melody. So you hear children singing these during the course of the books. And, and the elector songs specifically are the songs that te- te- teach you who is entitled to cast a vote uh, for the emperor. So Free Cities of the Ebo here is, uh, is one of those songs. Ah. 
The free cities of the Ebo have won a lecture each no more. Birmingham, Montgomery, Jackson, and Mobile on the shore, the shore, and Mobile on the shore. What is, I noticed there's one on the album that has a French title. Um, <laughs> how is that different from the other? Where does that come from? Without giving any spoilers, that's the one instrumental piece. There are some deaths in the book. Are you playing all the instruments? Is it several instruments? This is the one piece where I do not play all the instruments. Uh, so uh, if, if, we, if we hear it, uh, there's a banjo piece. Uh, that is me. And uh, there are drums that, I, that I'm doing. But actually, most of the pieces are being played by my 14-year-old son uh, on a keyboard. And there's a oh, there's a didgeridoo which I did, but the, there's like a tuba part in there, and there's a horn, and there's a there's a synthesized fiddle uh, that are all him. Uh, there are no lyrics. This is this is uh, the most unambiguously good person in book one is murdered, uh, and uh, and his funeral. He has kind of a clandestine funeral uh, uh, through, uh, poor quarters of New Orleans, and his, his, his procession goes through poor quarters of New Orleans, and he's buried in a potter's field outside the city. And, uh, there's the, the character, there's character witnessing this, uh, this procession, uh, and this is, this is my rendition of what she's hearing. It is a dirge, um, uh, modal, there is uh, there are these sort of hints of strange voices at the outside of it, uh, and, and one of the things I love about it is that my son William played a horn part, put a minor key melody from "Nearer My God to Thee" uh, into the piece. Cool. So it's called La Lamentation des Mystères. Yes, the 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 mourning of the Loa. So the mystère are the are the French word for the. Yeah, so you're bringing in some voodoo into these uh, books as well. Yes, uh, one of the characters, one of my favorite characters, who actually in book two gets a point of view, becomes a point of view character, is a mobster and uh, voodoo hungan, an initiated uh, sorcerer. It's cool. Um, well, let me tell you about one of my favorite tracks here. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, the Anacreontic song, or to Anacreon in Heaven, which only appears in the book in uh, a couple of lines. Um, and uh, if, you don't, if you don't know the piece, this is a real-world piece. I did not invent it. If you don't know it, you, you'll likely skip it without any further thought. Uh, it is a profoundly American piece in that this is the song uh, whose melody was uh, taken to form our national anthem. Uh, and yet, the song is a ribald drinking song. And so I love that. And, uh, and there's a, it appears in the book early on in the, in when a, a thug, is, uh, a group of thugs, is, is going to kidnap Sarah and drag her uh, down off the mountain. Uh, and the, their leader is, a, is an Englishman, a brute, named Obadiah Dogsbody, and he is drunk, and he is singing to Anacreon in heaven uh, as he goes to, uh, to perform this kidnapping. Cool. Um, Anacreon in heaven. So what, um, a, a lot of this seems to come out of, um, of a 19th century, um, 18th century sort of amalgam that was the Midwest, perhaps. Um, is there any, um, is there any other influence? Is there LDS influence, for instance, here? Do we have any? That's a very interesting question. Um, so, uh, so not consciously, not on any level, you would point out and say, "Aha, this is this is a this is a Mormon piece." Uh, unconsciously, I'd have to think about that. I don't know, but 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 uh, yeah. So influences. Uh, look, one of the one of the books that really um, I was reading several things at the same time that all kind of uh, formed the crucible. Uh, or formed together in the crucible to become this story. One of them was Grimm's fairy tales. I was reading those to my kids at night. I guess you wanted really warped adult to or, come yeah. out of their child. That's <laughs> right, because we're we're reading some of the some of the uh, not an expurgated version. Uh, yeah, I was also reading it in the daytime. A history of the Thirty Years' War it might have been uh, C. V. Wedgwood's history of the Thirty Years' War. I think. Uh, it, it, this is embarrassing to me to have to admit this because I was in my late 30s, right? 
But uh, I sort of finally put two and two together and said, wait a minute, uh, the Grimm's fairy tales, the setting of these is is early modern Germany. That's where these, these that's where these stories make sense. Uh, stories where you can have a lord mayor and a king, and they are on the same stage, you know, and the wild wood full of bog fairies and whatever. And I might have uh, gone down, and I, I really was enjoying that kind of reading that history at the same time as those stories, and I might have gone down the road of trying to write something in a early modern Germany, except at the same time I was also reading uh, David Hackett Fisher's book Albion Seed, which yeah, is... A seminal work, and as it were. Yeah, and, uh, as it were, very good, yeah. Uh, in American history, right? In kind of uh, anthropological history or historical yeah. anthropology. I don't know what you... But it, it looks at the American immigrations from England and says there is not one but four distinct immigrations with distinct cultures. And a, a Puritan who came from southeast England to the Massachusetts Bay was, was in some ways very, very different from someone who came from, you know, Alfred's old kingdom, uh, you know, southwest England, down to you know, down to the, the the coast, Virginia, Carolinas, right? Those are those are different cultures within England, and, and the uh, folk tales that came with them are different, and the folk traditions, especially the magic and the songs, and are different things. And the the way they England saw was certainly a, a divided place, um, yeah, geographically as well as. So, yes, go on. Yeah, still is some ways, and and America still is some ways too. And we have we have these uh, we have mass media cultures that kind of paper it over. But the closer you look, the the more you see the not divisions in a in a in a sense of the, like a rivalry or a disagreement, but the the, the individual peculiarities, the regionalities, the distinctivenesses. And uh, and I and so so partly I wanted to one of the things I love about writing witchy eyes is, is finding those distinctivenesses and celebrating them uh, and enjoying them and sort of seeing ourselves and our, you know, collective culture and soul yeah. through those. Yeah, in a way, it's, um, in a way, the book feels like a, uh, um, a, the subconscious of America on display as if it were really happening, the, our sort of uh, collective um, fairy tale. The, were you trying to do something like that? I mean... Absolutely. It sounds uh, arrogant to say that I'm trying to do something like Tolkien, because I'm not Tolkien. <laughs> but that's true. But who else? Uh, yeah. Who who is? Who fantasy, is? Uh, yeah. But if you're going to write, write fantasy, I mean, you must come into right. contact with what you what you think about J.R.R. Tolkien. Yeah. J. Railroad Token, as I like to call him. <laughs> the, um, you can explicitly reject that sort of thing. You can. Uh, yep. Or you can embrace it and try to see what you can do with it as well. It sounds like you took that that tag. I did. I did. And I'm a different guy from Tolkien. You know, he and his own experiences uh, are very uh, prominent in his writings, and I'm not that guy. But uh, but yeah, this is this is. Uh... Well, you've traveled. I mean, one of the things about Tolkien was that was he was a walker and a traveler around and yeah. and into the. You've done a lot of what, traveling in the last few years. Um, do you take in the landscape as you go, or is it just something you ended up in a hotel? And uh, I do take in the landscape. In fact, we are sitting here taping this face-to-face -face in, uh, in North Carolina, and one of the reasons I came here is because Book 2 has passages in North Carolina, and I'm not super confident in what North Carolina looks like, not having been here for a long, long time. Yeah. So, so as we drove down here this morning, uh, I was looking at the, the, at the, the at, that's exactly right, and just saying, okay, so, you know, here were there are hills here, that's what the trees look like. Well, North Carolina is basically defined by the river fall lines and the, you know, when the Piedmont starts where the rivers, um, where the rivers have waterfalls and you couldn't get any farther in. Anyway, that's the... Yeah, interesting. And you got the Piedmont, and then you got the mountains in the west. It's a it's a great state, very much a three stripe sort of very interesting uh, state. Yeah, I love it here. Um, it's beautiful. Yeah, it's a little warm for me. Kind of freaking hot today. <laughs> and sweaty in the middle of October. In October. <laughs> it's not even right. Aren't, I mean, aren't we on the same latitude line as like? You know, Helsinki or something. It shouldn't <laughs> be this way. <laughs> it shouldn't. I don't know. So, well, um, back to the, the music. Um, do you find any of the songs come first 
or do they in, inspire some of the, the writing or is it something that you put in afterwards or is it sort of um, integrated? That is a really good question. It can go um, either way. So sometimes as I'm writing and looking for a way to describe something or, boy, this is sounding really vague. Let me, let me give you an example. So in, in, in book two, there is a character who undergoes a shamanic initiation. That is to say he is ill and the crisis and recovery from his illness come from a kind of a death and ascent and being reborn. He, he, uh, in a, in a, he leaves his body, he ascends a seven-runged uh, ladder into heaven where cosmic ogres tear him to pieces, rebuild him with iron bones and a piece of quartz, as one does. Uh, and uh, happened to me. Yeah, exactly. That's how you get out of Alabama. <laughs> initiation. The iron and bones. Then, and you have to learn how to read. Yeah. But never mind, that's not true. So, <laughs> I don't know how to read. So uh, as I was writing this and trying to think about how to visualize it, um, one of the breakthrough moments is when I wrote the first verse of a song that the character spontaneously sings to organize and guide the horse slash drum that he is riding into heaven. So that so so the 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 song there really shaped it. Uh, there are other songs that I wrote first. Uh, the, uh, there's a song on this album called The Ballad of Peter Plowshare and Simon Sword, which is a sort of a, again, kind of a modal, a minor key kind of uh, a ballad about two characters who are essential to the story, uh, to, its, to its kind of background, its larger meaning. And, uh, and I wrote that first, before, you know, before I'd gotten to any chapters where, where they appeared. Uh, on the other hand, sometimes I get to a spot and I, and I say, okay, I'm going to put a song in here. And I put brackets and all caps song, and then later on I'll come back uh, and figure it out. That's cool. But in any case, in, in all cases, it's, it's something that, that you want to be part of this that's grown organically from yeah. the story that you're telling. That's absolutely right. Or even if it's an existing song, like the Anacreontic song or like, uh, like Der Maist Gekommen, I've got a German song on there, track four. Uh, you know, that's, that's a song I, I took, uh, it's a German folk song. Actually, uh, chrono chronologically, it's a little bit off. It's actually a couple decades too late to really be in the setting, but thematically it's perfect. It's, uh, it's about, uh, hiking. It's a song about hiking and, uh, wandering around the mountains and, uh, trying new wines and sleeping under open heavens. Uh, and in the book, uh, your knapsack on your back. Yes. That's exactly right. Uh, and in the book, this is a song sung by German keelboatmen in the fog to keep other boats from running into them in the darkness as they're going down the Mississippi River. Uh, and and it, it is sort of describing the experience of the main characters who are sort of it's a little hobbit-like. They have left home, and they're wandering farther than they have before and sleeping under the open sky and trying new wines. Sounds like a life to me. But, uh, let's listen to that. Dem meist gekommen, die Bäume schlagen aus, doch hab Leiber, wer Lust hat, mit Sorgen zu Haus. Wie die Wolken dort wandern an himmlischen Zelt, so steht auch mir der Sinn in die weite, weite Welt. Herr Vater, Frau Mutter, das Gott euch behielt, wer weiß, wo in der Ferne mein Glück mir noch blüht. Es gibt so manche Straße, da nimmer ich marschiert. Es gibt so manchen Wein, den nimmer ich probiert. Probier es, Dieter! Und Abends 
Lass ihn stecken, da kehr ich durch dich ein. Er wird mein, er wird einer, kann er blanken Wein. Er greift mal die Fiedel, du lustig spiel man du. Und meinem Schatz das Liedel, das sing ich dazu. Sing es, Hans! What is your favorite cut on this? Let's uh, let's take it out with that. Um, what else do we need to say about? Uh, well, which guy is going to be out uh, in mass market? And do we say March? I'm March, sure it's March. Yep. Yeah. And then uh, Witchy Winter will be uh, an April book. Yeah, will be out in April. So. so one of my one of my favorite tracks, right? Which well, means, by the way, it'll be an EARC in um, January, I believe. So you can uh, if if you can just wait that long, you can get a. You get your first gander at it. Yeah, I'm very excited about that. Um, my kids, my kids, uh, that was my, my 12-year-old daughter who was singing the Free Cities of the Ebo. Each of my three kids sings one of the Elector songs on here. Um, and once I, and they were initially reluctant, but once I got them to sing one piece, they each then want to do a lot more. Um, so, uh, so track seven is a uh, hymn. There are two funerals in Witchy Eye, and at the other funeral, this is the song, that uh, mountain tenor Calvin Calhoun sings uh, over their over the body of their fallen comrade. This is a this is a real world song. Uh, I like it because you know Isaac Watt. It's like Stephen Foster or somebody. He's just one of these guys where he wrote a ton of songs, and you may have never heard his name, but you've probably heard. If you've ever been in a church and you've seen the uh, the the credits to the hymnals, that's right. I mean, it's just all over it. If, if any Protestant church yep. uh, hymnal. Absolutely, or even just hearing stuff, even hearing just Christmas songs around town, because Joy to the World yeah. is an Isaac Watts song. Um, and uh, so I, and, and it is chronologically right. He's a late 1600s, early 1700s. Uh, uh, it's his life uh, time, so this is an early 18th century publication. Um, but I love this one because my kids really got into it. So you listen to the chorus. The chorus has a, I think, seven-part vocal uh, with all three of my kids uh, singing along. And, and because possibly they are in it, uh, they tell me that this is the very best track on the album. Well, uh, before we'll listen to that. And, but before we uh, do that, let's just say that um, the book is Witchy Eye um, and Witchy Winter coming out. Uh, Dave, thank you so much for, and, and it's by DJ Butler. That's, uh, that's, his, that's the way Dave goes. Um, and Lord knows we have enough Davids in Bain <laughs> that we could use a DJ. Um, so, uh, Dave, why don't you uh, tell us where we could also get the CD? Oh, yeah. So, uh, as of now, uh, you can buy it on Amazon.com. The title is The Songs of Witchy Winter. Uh, or, if you are adventurous, you can buy it at createspace.com uh, uh, under the same title. Should, should be, or at least as of now, it's the same price. Cool. So you can uh, you can get it, and or either download or in CD form, either place. Or so actually, right CD. now it's only a CD. The download is coming. I am working on that. That's a good question. I'm glad you asked that, uh, Tony. Um, I'm still trying to figure out how to find a place where, where that I can that will farm the songs out, uh, either collectively, well, collectively and also in separate tracks to iTunes and Google Play, etc. So right now the only way to get it is as a uh, physical album, but it will, as soon as I can get this done, uh, be available uh, for download. Well, it's got a beautiful uh, cover. You've uh, obviously talked to uh, to uh, Dan Dos Santos about using it for the for the album art. And, I did. Uh, and and Witchy has just got a fantastic cover. 
Yep, and the Witchy Winter one is also great. Yeah, I feel and very Dan lucky. Santos is just uh, he's the best artist around, in my opinion. He's the guy. Yeah, it's beautiful stuff. So. Anything with a Dan Dos Santos cover on it, you should definitely read. Yep, and Wolf so Saga, for example. A, that's right. Damn it. <laughs> that's right. If you're a Dos Santos collector, you better get this CD because it's going to be it's going to be a collector's item for for anyone uh, that that has that sort of stuff as well. So. Thanks so much for coming by and talking to us in person. We really appreciate it. Thanks, and, Tony. Uh, let's listen to At the Cross. <laughs> This is another entry in Alliance of Equals, a Leiden Universe novel by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. Beset by the angry remnants of the Department of the Interior, and challenged at every turn by opportunists on their new homeworld of Sherbleek, and low on funds, Clan Corval desperately needs to reestablish its position as one of the top trading clans in known space. 
To this end, master trader Sean Yosgalen and Corville's premier trade ship, Dutiful Passage, is on a mission to establish new business associations and to build a strong primary route that links well with existing loops and secondary routes. But re-establishing trade and preserving the lives of the few remaining members of the clan aren't all of Corval's problem. Matters come to a head as Dutiful Passage, accustomed to being welcomed and feeded at those ports on its call list, finds itself denied docking and blacklisting while agents of the DOI mount armed attacks on others of Corval's traders under the very eyes of port security systems. Traveling with dutiful trader on this unsettling journey is Patty O'Scalen, the master trader's heir and his apprentice. Patty is eager to make up for time lost due to Corville's unpleasantness with the Department of the Interior, but she is also keeping a secret so intense that her coming of age and perhaps her very life is threatened by it. And here is the latest entry in Sharon Lee and Steve Miller's Alliance of Equals. Chapter 13 Dutiful Passage Sean's work screen was a wilderness of star maps, trade reports, fee schedules, population studies, cultural synopses. Pushed into the bottom left corner was a tiny screen in which he would occasionally type a note or an equation. He flipped to a second screen, just as crowded as the first flicked a file open and read the contents, a frown between his frosty brows. His fingers moved on the keypad, making a note. They were en route for Langlast, and somewhat at a disadvantage, trade at Chessel's world having failed the master no less completely than the apprentice. Of course, they carried the usual mix of goods and the art pieces he had taken on at Andiri. Research led him to hope that the art might find a welcoming market at Langlast. Whether the welcome would be sufficient to cover the costs of trade, well, that was the thrill and the charm of trade, was it not? Truth told, Research revealed Langlast to hold interesting possibilities. There was brisk commerce between it and its nearest neighbor, Brietta. Langlast was also well-situated in terms of jump points and therefore served as a hub, a convenient place to pick up and drop off cargo for trans-shipping. There were several cargo yards and a station warehouse in Langlast orbit. Research had turned up mention of plans to construct a proper way station, not only to serve the needs of trade crews and freighter pilots, but also, perhaps, to attract small passenger ships. It might well be, Sean thought, flipping screens that Langlast would do well as an anchor for a new route. The opportunities for trans-shipping. The opportunities for trans-shipping required him to look beyond Langlast and Brietta, along several potential routes, given the number of jump points available. Where would the passage go from Langlast to her best profit? Might another of Corval's ships more profitably take another route? Whence did the ships and freighters hail? Where did they travel to? Who picked up and dropped off pods at the cargo yards? These were no simple questions, and were the reason behind this proliferation of research screens and the multitude of open documents. Research was complicated by uncertainty, for they, which was to say the captain, the first mate, and the master trader, had agreed to undertake an experiment on their approach to Langlast. It had been decided before they left Shorebleak that neither the passage nor Corval would proffer an explanation of the sad events on Liad that had ultimately seen them banished. They would, of course, provide the facts if asked, or, as in the matter of Paddy's arrest and trial, the facts were necessary to clarify the matter to authorities. 
to offer the facts beforehand, said the Delm, and Sean had somewhat agreed with them, made it seem as if they were justifying themselves before even a question was asked and might be considered a point of weakness. Well, Chessel's world had taught them something, perhaps, regarding points of weakness. Thus, they had decided to vary. A précis of the action at Liad, including the situation regarding the subterranean enemy base. Corval's reasoning and action on behalf of the planet was included in the ship's info packet. In theory, this would give the portmaster time to deny them docking, if she so wished, after having perused the facts of the matter. Of course, if the passage was asked to pass Langlast by. A chime sounded, bright as crystal being struck, announcing the arrival of mail. Mail. Dared he hope that it was, at last, a communication from TerraTrade? Or could it be possible from Lomar? Of TerraTrade he had begun absolutely to despair. Of Lomar, he began to fear indeed that Lomar had not merely left her temple, but had been returned to her goddess and all her plentiful household with her. Well, he folded the research screens away, finding his inbox beneath the sixth and tapped it open. A message from TerraTrade glowed at the top of the queue. Stomach tight, he opened it, skimmed over the graceful apology for the delay in replying, and found the meat of the matter in the second paragraph. It, too, was gracefully written, but it came down to more delay. TerraTrade's own records of Shurebleak Port were badly dated and sketchy at best. Sean had the impression that the survey team had touched down during the worst of recent history, taken one look at the threadbare facilities, the empty storefronts, the lack of any guild, or even peacekeeping office, and gotten back on their ship for a fast lift out. It will therefore be necessary, sir, that Shurebleak Port be properly surveyed. As I write this, a survey team has been dispatched. The adjudicating commissioners desired me to assure you that there is no fault or failing in the documentation provided to us by the port or in your testimony. This is purely a failure of the commission's system, and we are, as above, rectifying our error with all possible speed. Please allow me to presume upon your forbearance and to thank you for that courtesy, as I convey once again TerraTrade's profoundest dismay at the inconvenience and the further delay in this matter. Sean closed his eyes and counted backward by threes from twelve dozen, which, truth told, did very little to cool his irritation. There was some humor to be found, he supposed, in the report of the commissioner's horrified discovery of their own error, but not very much humor. Patrin, boss Conrad as he was known to greater Shurbleek, the boss of bosses, Patrin was not going to be pleased. Delm Corval, so he suspected, was going to be even less pleased. He paused with his fingers over the keyboard, weighing the relative melantes of those concerned persons. Then, nodding to himself, he directed the note to the comm tower, with instructions to pin-beam it to Patrin Yosfelium, who, after all, was boss of the world of Shurbleek and therefore the port. The boss would then have the joyous task of informing the Delm, who was not boss of the world, despite enjoying an intense interest in ports in general and the port serving Corval's homeworld in particular. That bit of business taken care of, Sean looked again to his mail queue. 
Letter of interest was the subject of the communication at the top of his screen from Aldergate Enterprises. Well, well. Letters of interest had been rather thin on the ground since Corval's abrupt relocation to Shorebleak. He had, naturally, put announcements in all the trade publications, even in Taggarth's Trade News, which would do better to call itself Taggarth's Rumor and Gossip, which effort had thus far reaped two letters of interest, both ineligible in the extreme. Third time, Sean said, quoting his mother, is charmed. He reached to the keyboard and opened his letter. That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Alliance of Equals by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com. Thanks for excellent help in editing the interview from Bain intern Taylor Panaccioni. And to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And the end times rag played on a hundred thousand Roman cornets, plus the tinkling of the tiny piano of hope and charity and their ragtime mouse band, as well as the thanks of a grateful, non-alternate, magic-poor but hungry nation, to G.J. Butler, author of Witchy Eye and artist on the Witchy Eye CD. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars. <laughs>